The opinions expressed in this episode do not necessarily reflect those of the Murderish podcast. Sensitive topics are discussed. Listener discretion is advised. On the morning of February 28, 1997, the need for change at their North Hollywood electronics shop sparked a debate between Jenny Jolette and her husband, Dan. It was Friday, not to mention the last day of the month, and the Bank of America branch on Laurel Canyon Boulevard they frequented was sure to be a zoo. Hourly employees cashing their paychecks would create a frenzy that Dan wanted his wife to avoid. But Jenny wasn't having it. Running out of change made for upset customers, and upset customers were bad for business. The immigrant couple had opened the store a few years earlier, hoping to capitalize on the explosion of at-home entertainment systems. The deliberation put to rest, Jenny got behind the wheel of the couple's car and set off for the nearby bank. Located at the corner of a bustling intersection in the East San Fernando Valley, the sprawling financial center had large parking lots on either side and nine teller windows, enough to serve the neighborhood's growing population. Jenny arrived in the south lot just as the B of A branch manager unlocked the doors at 8.59 a.m. on what was another beautiful Southern California day. 75 degrees, not a cloud in the sky. Outside, a crush of customers poured inside, past the manager and a security guard, and into the lobby, with its marble floors and polished countertops reflecting the harsh glare of overhead lights. Apprehensive employees eyed the mass of people nervously as they swarmed the teller windows, hands gripping perforated checks. On Fridays, banks saw not just a surge in regular customers, but the unwelcome attention of crooks, lured by the increased cash reserves. Los Angeles in 1994 had seen 1,200 bank heists, over three a day, earning the city the dubious title, bank robbery capital of the world. Despite prior victimizations, the branch at 6600 Laurel Canyon Boulevard felt secure with its enhanced protocols and frequent cash pickups. But nothing could have prepared the employees for the terror that awaited them on that sunny February morning. Within minutes of opening, staff's worst fears were realized. Jenny recalled that morning saying, all I remember is them shouting for everyone to get down and threatening to shoot anyone who used the alarm. It didn't feel real. It felt like I was in a dream. And then they fired. These were no ordinary thieves. Wearing black ski masks, customized body armor, and military vests stuffed full of rifle clips. The pair looked like paramilitaries from a bad Hollywood action movie. Stoned on barbiturates, intended to calm their nerves, and armed with over 3,000 rounds of ammunition, the two men were about to turn the streets of Los Angeles into a war zone, and in doing so, change American policing forever. This is Jamie, and you're listening to Murderish. Join me as I revisit the 1997 North Hollywood shootout. 
long before the headlines screamed their names, Larry Eugene Phillips Jr. and Emil Montessoreno were down on their luck outcasts whose lives were going nowhere. The son of a small-time Denver crook and a drug-addicted mother, Phillips gave the middle finger to societal norms. His heroes weren't presidents, politicians, or professional athletes. They were gangsters and swindlers. Born September 20, 1970, Phillips was introduced early to the criminal lifestyle. At the time of his birth, his father was a convict on the lam, having escaped Colorado State Reformatory for Los Angeles, California. At the hospital, Larry Sr. gave his baby boy the false last name that he'd been using to avoid detection, Warfel. Phillips's half-brother said he was born under an alias. Attempts by his mother, Dorothy Clay, to limit Larry Sr.'s influence were futile. Little Larry idolized his father, who split his time between Los Angeles and Denver. When he was in town, the elder Phillips would take his son to wrestling matches, video arcades, and shooting ranges, the kind of things an estranged father does to win a young boy's affection. Rather than use these fleeting moments together to impart important life advice, Larry Sr. taught his son different lessons. Never trust cops, fight authority, and rules are meant to be broken. In an interview with the LA Times after the North Hollywood shootout, Phillips Sr. said his son's disdain toward law enforcement stemmed from his sixth birthday when FBI agents barged into Dorothy Clay's mobile home outside Denver with guns drawn to arrest his dad. According to the father, he hated cops because of what they did to me. He knew that every time I came into contact with the police, something bad happened. It didn't take long for Larry Jr. to begin recording a rap sheet of his own. The high school dropout was arrested in 1989 in Alhambra, California, for stealing $400 worth of suits from Sears. He soon graduated to more sophisticated schemes. In 1991, police in Orange, California, arrested Phillips on suspicion of forging deeds of trust to acquire mortgage loans under false pretenses. The burgeoning con man avoided prosecution, but had to pay back tens of thousands of dollars to two title companies. According to Phillips's half-brother, Larry Jr. was motivated by a single interest, money. In a 1997 interview with the LA Times, he said Phillips' idols were icons of white-collar crime. Men like Michael Milken and Barry Minkow, the 20-something who duped investors out of $100 million using a fraudulent carpet cleaning company. Of his brother, he said, he wanted to live the American dream. He decided to go about it the wrong way. Phillips's brashness got the best of him in 1992 when police caught him renting out homes in Denver, homes he didn't own. He'd use lockboxes to get into condos that were on the market and then pose as the leasing agent, taking and cashing the prospective renter's security deposit before they figured out they'd been had. After being charged with multiple counts of real estate fraud, the 22-year-old fled the Rocky Mountain State, heading back to Los Angeles for good. 
When he wasn't devising ways to separate people from their money, Phillips loved lifting weights. Obsessed with becoming the next Mr. Olympia, he'd drive two hours to train at Gold's Gym in Venice Beach, the mecca of bodybuilding. It was at Gold's Gym in 1989 that police believe Phillips met the man who would forever change his life, Emil Matasoreno. Emil Matasoreno was born July 19, 1968, in Soviet-controlled Romania to a 26-year-old mother and a 48-year-old father. His mother, Valerie Nicolescu, a vocalist in the Romanian State Orchestra, defected in 1974 while on tour in Italy. After reaching the United States on her own, Nicolescu appealed to the American government to allow her young son and his father, a former political prisoner, to join her. They finally got their wish and were reunited three years later in 1977, when Emil was nine. After being enrolled in school in Los Angeles, Emil was bullied relentlessly for his inability to speak the language and for being overweight. The ostracization curdled the young boy's heart toward his adopted country and the parents who'd uprooted him. His home life wasn't much better. His mother and father would fight for hours on end, often taking out their anger on him. One story that circulated tells of Emil having to get between his parents with a chair to keep them apart, akin to a lion tamer. In computers, young Mata Sereno found an escape. His fingers danced across the keyboard, weaving lines of code that birthed fantastical worlds on the screen. Each solved problem, each bug vanquished, was a victory, a tiny crack in the wall he felt closing in around him. Mata Sereno enrolled in DeVry University in Pomona and earned a degree in electrical engineering. In 1988, he became a naturalized citizen. Mata Sereno's first try at earning a living, opening his own computer repair company, failed after less than a year. So with a new wife and infant son in tow, he went to work for the family business, the board and care home his mother operated in Altadena, known as Valerie's Villa. That's when his American dream began to crumble. First, Emil was struck in the head by one of the residents, leaving him with a lasting injury. The next year, authorities nearly closed down the service because of an allegation made that Mata Sereno abused one of the boarders. Then came the money troubles. According to the LA Times, the family's money troubles date to at least 1990, when the first of several state and federal tax liens totaling about $4,000 was filed. In 1995, Mata Sereno and his mother borrowed heavily on their home. And soon after that, Valerie Nicolescu's license was suspended by the State Department of Social Services over accusations that two developmentally disabled clients were improperly left at a hospital. The home was closed for good when it failed to meet fire safety specifications. His failings and past trauma manifested itself in anger towards strangers and toward the system. One time, Mata Sereno confronted a neighbor with a chainsaw. The neighbor's error? 
walking his dog on Emile's lawn. Let down by those he counted on most, Mata Sereno turned to Phillips, whom he'd met four years prior at Gold's Gym in Venice. When Phillips fled charges in Colorado, it was Mata Sereno who took him in. So what could a real estate conman and a software engineer possibly have in common? Two things, distrust of government and powerful weapons. Soon after striking up a friendship, Phillips and Matasoreno started going to gun ranges together. They loved to watch movies like Scarface and Heat, the 1995 thriller starring Al Pacino and Robert De Niro about a bank heist that ends in a shootout with police. Phillips, who had a reputation for manipulation, is thought to have seeded his friend's mind with the idea of robbing banks. Phillips' half-brother said to the LA Times, you can't imagine how manipulative my brother was. He tried to break your mind down and then build it up again so that you would become one of his crew. Valerie Nicolescu, Emile's mother, also subscribed to the notion that her son fell under Philip's spell, telling the media of Emile he was a follower. Over time, the two men stockpiled enough guns, ammo, and body armor to start a small militia. At some point, they decided to put that weaponry to work. In July of 1993, they pulled off their first successful heist, holding up a Brinks truck in Denver and getting away with $20,000. Ladies, did you know that one of the most common complaints from women about their sexual health is a frustrating low libido? Our sex drives can decline, but it's also treatable. Addy or phlebanserin is FDA approved and has been clinically proven to increase sexual desire in certain premenopausal women who are bothered by a low libido. So if you feel like you've lost your desire and you wanna get it back, stop falling for the snake oils and ask your doctor about Addy today or go to Addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. Addy is for premenopausal women with acquired generalized hypoactive sexual desire disorder, HSDD, who have not had problems with low sexual desire in the past, who have low sexual desire no matter the type of sexual activity, the situation, or the sexual partner. The low sexual desire is troubling to them and is not due to a medical or mental health problem, problems in the relationship, or medicine or other drug use. Addy is not for use in men or to enhance sexual performance. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is increased if you drink one to two standard alcoholic drinks close in time to your Addy dose. Wait at least two hours after drinking before taking Addy at bedtime. Your risk of severe low blood pressure and fainting is also increased if you take certain prescriptions, over-the-counter or herbal medications or have liver problems. Low blood pressure and fainting can happen when you take Addy even if you don't drink alcohol or take other medicines. Do not take if you are allergic to any of the ingredients in Addy. Allergic reactions may include hives, itching or trouble breathing. Sleepiness, sometimes serious, can occur. Common side effects include dizziness, nausea, tiredness, difficulty falling asleep or staying asleep, and dry mouth. See full PI and medication guide, including box warning at addy.com forward slash PI or call 844-PINK-PILL. Ask your doctor about Addy today or go to addy.com. That's A-D-D-Y-I.com. I have to put you all on to Blueland. Blueland's products aren't just about keeping things tidy. They're also about living greener by cutting down on plastic use, a true game changer for a cleaner lifestyle. Around 5 billion plastic bottles for hand soap and cleaning solutions get tossed every year. 
and most of those cleaning solutions are a whopping 90% water, making them heavy to ship and cause a ton of carbon emissions. On top of that, they're packed with not so great stuff like chlorine and ammonia. It's a lose-lose situation for both you and the planet. Blue Land has a clear-cut mission, ditch single-use plastic by reimagining cleaning essentials to be eco-friendly without compromising on powerful cleaning. They offer refillable cleaning products with a sleek, cohesive design that adds a touch of style to your countertop. The bottles are so simplistic and aesthetically pleasing. I love interior design, so these bottles are like an elevated accessory to my home's decor. Forget about lugging around hefty cleaning supplies during your grocery run. Just fill your reusable bottles with water, drop in the tablet, and then let them dissolve. Best part? Refills start at just $2.25, and you can score even more savings with a subscription or bulk purchase. Whether it's cleaning sprays, hand soap, toilet bowl cleaner, or laundry tablets, all Blue Land products boast clean ingredients that you can stand behind. Trusted in over a million homes, including mine, Blue Land is making a real impact. Blue Land has a special offer for listeners. Right now, get 15% off your first order by going to blueland.com slash murderish. You won't want to miss this. blueland.com slash murderish for 15% off. That's blueland.com slash murderish to get 15% off. Just like criminals need a partner in crime to pull off some of their elaborate schemes, you need a partner to help take your business to the next level. Shopify stands as the global commerce platform dedicated to supporting your business journey at every stage. Whether you're taking initial steps to launch your online shop, transitioning to your first brick and mortar store, or hitting the remarkable, did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is here to fuel your growth. Whether you're selling sleuthing supplies or marketing mystery merch, Shopify ensures you can sell everywhere. Their all-encompassing e-commerce platform and seamless in-person POS system have your back, no matter what or where you're selling. What sets Shopify apart is its commitment to turning casual browsers into committed buyers, boasting the internet's best converting checkout, a staggering 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. And here's where the real magic happens. Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star, streamlines your efforts to sell more with less hassle. When I first launched Murderish, I was solely focused on growing the podcast and my business. But once I started hitting those milestones, I realized that I needed more support for my growing business. What I love about Shopify is that no matter how big you want to grow your business, Shopify has all the tools you need to take your business to the next level. Fueling 10% of total e-commerce in the US, Shopify emerges as the driving force behind major players like Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, as well as countless entrepreneurs spanning 175 countries. Beyond its global influence, Shopify offers a wealth of support resources, ensuring assistance at every stage of your journey towards success. After all, businesses that thrive, thrive with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash murderish, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash murderish now to grow your business. No matter what stage you're in, shopify.com slash murderish.
their reign of terror poised to inflict heavy losses on the banking system, almost met its untimely end just as it began. In October of 1993, Glendale Police Sergeant Ian Grimes pulled over the men in a red Ford Thunderbird for speeding. After Phillips refused to provide the detective with ID, Grimes asked to see inside the trunk. What he found shocked even the veteran lawman. Two AK-47s, three 9mm handguns, 1,000 rounds of ammo, six smoke grenades, two homemade explosives, and a gas mask. Also recovered, police scanners, bulletproof vests, a stopwatch, gloves, sunglasses, wigs, ski masks, and other clothing. Basically, a North Hollywood shootout starter pack. Yet, despite the alarming discovery, Glendale prosecutors were only able to convict the men of minor weapons charges and providing false information. Each of them were sentenced to 90 days in jail. Deputy District Attorney James Grodin, who supervised prosecution of the case, told the LA Daily News that he initially charged the pair with conspiracy to commit robbery, but had to settle for several less serious offenses because he lacked evidence to prove a conspiracy. What's most alarming, once the majority of charges had been dropped, the men's attorneys filed a petition to have all their weapons and equipment returned to them so they could pay for their legal fees. A judge granted the request, returning to the men nearly everything confiscated from the car, except the three Glock pistols. Perhaps emboldened by the lack of consequences, Phillips and Montesoreno went back to their original blueprint, move fast and scare people. In June of 1995, they shot and killed the guard of an armored truck in broad daylight outside of a Southern California bank as dozens of witnesses looked on, walking away with over $120,000. Unfazed by the violence, the duo decided to up the ante. Instead of hitting the trucks responsible for moving the bank's money, they wanted to rob the banks themselves. In May of 1996, they robbed a Bank of America in Van Nuys, California. In that heist, the friends made off with $755,000 in just eight minutes. They hit another B of A three weeks later, scoring $800,000. Authorities labeled the pair the high-incident bandits. Their brazen robberies, punctuated by the rattle of automatic weapons, left a trail of shattered glass and terrified customers. But it was the whisper of another element that truly chilled the FBI, armor-piercing bullets in their magazines. Every heist felt like a countdown, every encounter a potential massacre. In hushed meetings, law enforcement scrambled to adapt, their usual tactics suddenly obsolete against an enemy seemingly ripped from the pages of a dystopian nightmare. Now pseudo-millionaires, Phillips and Montesoreno used the stolen cash to fund a lavish lifestyle. Phillips wore $500 suits, $200 shoes, and a $5,000 Rolex. Larry Phillips Sr. recalls his son inviting him for a ride in his Jaguar. He never asked where the money came from. Montesoreno, meanwhile, 
moved with his wife into an upscale home in Roland Heights, east of Los Angeles. According to Phillips's half-brother, even Mata Sereno's choice of life partner fell under his partner's influence. As reported in the LA Times, he told Emil not to marry an American woman. Larry didn't like the way American women always talked back. On a 1990 trip to Romania to bring back his grandmother, Mata Sereno also brought back a Romanian wife, Christina. With enough money to live comfortably for years, the crooks could have given it up. But months of simmering boredom gnawed at them, the adrenaline rush of the last score a fading echo. The Bank of America on Laurel Canyon Boulevard, a defiant monolith of wealth, offered the ultimate test, a chance to cement their notoriety in one final audacious act. Nearly 30 years removed from the North Hollywood shootout, Jenny Jolette told Murderish she can still recall the deafening sound of the assault rifle as it was fired inside the bank. Jolette said, everyone was so scared, it was terrible. All I kept thinking was, I should have just listened to Dan. Screamed at by the robbers to hit the ground and stay still, Jolette and those around her dropped like flies. When Emil Matasoreno spotted 79-year-old Mildred Nolte making eye contact with him, he struck her in the head with the barrel of his rifle, nearly knocking her unconscious. He told another bank customer, Javier Orozco, if you don't want to die, get all the way down on the floor. The two men knew the branch inside and out. Over the course of months of planning, they'd studied the movements of employees knew who could gain access to the vault and what protocol staff would follow as the robbery unfolded. Their goal was always the same, in and out in eight minutes, ignore the teller's cash drawers and head straight for the vault. Phillips and Montessoreno could have moved faster if they weren't weighed down by their immense arsenal and 40 plus pounds of armor. As a cop would later say, they hadn't come prepared to rob a bank. They'd come to wage warfare. In addition to the body armor, Phillips brandished a Chinese-made AK-47 with a 70-round drum magazine. Mata Sereno wielded a Bushmaster XM-15 assault rifle with twin drums containing 100 rounds each. Of their nearly 3,500 rounds of ammo, over 1,000 were armor-piercing. Bank customer David Shapiro told a local TV station, they looked like RoboCop. I mean, they were so heavily armed. They looked dangerous. Phillips' customized armor, hidden behind a jacket and jogging pants, covered him from neck to toe, including all his vital organs. Mata Sereno's armor, meanwhile, stopped below the waist. At six foot two and nearly 280 pounds, he found he couldn't move properly in full leg armor. But he moved well enough to contact the bank manager, who he knew by appearance. After blasting through a reinforced glass security door with his assault rifle, Mata Sereno ordered the man to open the vault. Only, it wasn't that simple. Because of the rash of robberies, the bank had instituted a two-key policy, requiring more than one person to be present 
to unlock the safe, Matasoreno raised his AK-47 and pointed it at the branch manager's head. So who has the other key, he yelled. The manager pointed across the room to the assistant manager, who quickly produced the second key. While Phillips rounded up bank guests and employees, Matasoreno followed the manager to the back of the branch. When the vault's massive steel door swung open, the experienced thief was not happy with what he saw. In their months of preparation leading up to the heist, the pair had expected to find as much as $1 million. Now, he was looking at less than half that. Where's the rest of the cash? Where the fuck is it? Montessoreno yelled at the manager, who by then was hurriedly stuffing stacks of cash into a duffel bag provided by the robbers. Angry and distracted, the hulking figure took his eyes off the manager, long enough for the bank employee to sneak a dye pack into the camouflage sack. A fraction of the anticipated loot mocking him, Mata Sereno wasted precious seconds in a desperate search around the branch for the missing cash, oblivious to the bank's new policy of keeping fewer bills on hand. Ultimately, it wouldn't have mattered if Mata Sereno and Phillips were in and out in five minutes. Unbeknownst to the menacing duo unleashing terror inside the Bank of America, a citywide dragnet was closing in. Dashing any hope of a clean escape, an LAPD patrol car driving southbound on Laurel Canyon toward an unrelated call had spotted the two frightening figures as they walked from the getaway car to the entrance of the bank at 9.17 a.m. The patrolman, Lauren Farrell and Martin Perello put out a radio call of a 211 in progress with shots fired. Backup units raced to the scene. Among the first officers to arrive, James Zaborovan and three other officers, John Krulak, Tracy Angelese, and Stuart Guy, took up a defensive position across the street at a neighboring strip mall and waited to confirm if the initial call was legit. Within moments, they heard the unmistakable thwop-thwop of an assault rifle, validating what officers Farrell and Perello said over the radio. Before Phillips and Matasoreno even emerged, over a dozen officers had fanned out around the Bank of America, with reinforcements streaming in. 99% of bank robberies that started in this manner ended one of two ways, immediate surrender, or hole up in hostage hell. One officer said, we thought we had the tiger by the tail. North Hollywood would prove different. At 9.24 a.m., Phillips and Matasoreno emerged from the bank's northwest doors. They spotted officers hunkered down behind patrol cars at the intersection of Laurel Canyon and Archwood. In response, they raised their rifles and unleashed a torrent of fire. The Battle of Laurel Canyon was on. Now this is the gunman, he's crouching. He starts to walk away almost nonchalantly, but look at him with his AK-47. Now he's starting to open up. Police, he's firing at police who are across the street in a parking lot. Now he's walking. This is what makes me think he had body armor on because this is a guy who is almost nonchalant in the way he's walking around Very in that casual. parking lot. The first to be injured, Sergeant Dean Haynes, who was hit in the shoulder as he ducked behind a car. 
Officer Martin Whitfield and two civilians went down next. Further south, down Laurel, Zaborovan returned fire with his shotgun from behind a key shack in the strip mall. The blast had little effect, serving only to anger Phillips, who unloaded on the tiny structure with his weapons of war. The AK-47 rounds passed through the stand like a hot knife through butter. Angelise said, that's when I knew that we were in a lot more trouble than we realized. Their supposed cover dissolving into thin air, the officers made a desperate scramble for a row of parked cars about 80 feet away. Zaborovan, struck in the hip and lower back, doubled over with a scream. Stuart Guy clutched his leg, a crimson stain blooming on his uniform. Tracy Angelese, a bullet sizzling past her ear, threw herself onto the pavement, pinned down by what Guy described as raindrops of death. Angelese said, I can remember thinking that I didn't want to die in that parking lot. Not like that. After going in and out of the bank's doors multiple times during the shooting, Phillips and Mata Sereno decided to head for their getaway car, a white Chevy Impala in the bank's north parking lot. No sooner do they step off the curb that they hear a loud bang from inside the bag of stolen dough. The dye pack, slipped inside by the branch manager, had exploded, rendering the cash inside completely useless. For the two men, this was no longer about money. They turned their attention back to inflicting as much damage as possible, unleashing another barrage, this time toward a group of officers positioned behind the east wall of the bank. Once they reached the Chevy, Phillips casually, almost nonchalantly, retrieved extra ammunition from his utility belt and reloaded his rifle. Officers, remaining at a distance, returned fire with handguns and shotguns. It was at that moment they came to a frightening reality. The shots were landing, but having no effect. Their department-issued weapons were no match for the pair's body armor. Standing behind the getaway car, Phillips fired furiously across the street to the north and west of the bank. By this time, Officer Whitfield, struck in the leg, arm, and chest, and bleeding profusely, was lying helplessly on the ground beneath a tree. Pinned down by the automatic weapon fire, the 29-year-old's only option was to wait for rescue and pray. Suddenly, the officer's constant fire had an impact. Emil Montessoreno was hit once in his unprotected right leg, Larry Phillips in the left wrist. Now struggling to walk, Montessoreno jumped behind the wheel of the car and implored Phillips to join him. But Phillips seemed to relish the confrontation. He switched out his AK-47 for a Heckler & Koch high-powered long rifle that he used to target the officer's air support and circling news copters. One of the pilots, Charles Paraguay, was no stranger to gunfire, having served in Vietnam. What struck him even more than the shooter's firepower was their demeanor. In a 2004 documentary about the North Hollywood shootout, dubbed Zero Hour, Paraguay said they weren't running about, they were staying super calm, 
just going about their business. The self-discipline they showed was just amazing. With Phillips focused on firing at police helicopters and news copters, cops on the ground poured in on the two shooters. A bullet struck Phillips's long rifle, rendering it useless. So the crook went back to his AK and continued to fire. He handed his limping partner an M16 machine gun and beckoned him to do the same. With rounds striking all around them, Mata Sereno pulled the vehicle out of its angled parking spot and began to drive forward as Phillips walked alongside the vehicle. Unbelievably, they took their deadly show on the road. As North Hollywood shooters Emil Montesoreno and Larry Phillips prepared to depart the Bank of America parking lot, cops resorted to desperate measures. Early on in the firefight, when it became apparent law enforcement's standard-issue weapons were no match for the enemies, command sent a group of officers to find better artillery. Their solution, B&B guns. Just after 9.25 a.m., LAPD screeched their cars to a stop in front of the private gun store, telling the staff, we need your help, we have an army out there. The store's manager, recognizing some of the officers as previous customers, overlooked the 15-day waiting period a typical civilian would face and quickly supplied them with four semi-automatic rifles with high-capacity magazines and two shotguns. By the time the weapons arrived on scene, the shooters had begun their ill-fated getaway. For the first few hundred feet, Mata Sereno and Phillips worked in concert. With Mata Sereno driving the vehicle and Phillips walking alongside it, using the Chevy like a shield as he fired relentlessly at police. By this time, the media was on scene with cameras rolling. Footage of the gunfight will live forever in the minds of those who watched in awe from their living rooms. Squad is being notified, code three, all officers stay down. Shots are being fired from AK-47. And now you see the white car? The white car is the getaway car. Here is another pack over in, a, in the uh, handicapped parking in the bank. We don't know what was in there, but he comes out shooting across the top of the car. The, see the firing from inside the car? That's the second gunman. He throws something out. They're using this getaway car as cover as they fire at police who are, who are all taking cover across the street. Once they arrived at the parking lot exit, the men suddenly broke ranks, with Phillips running east on Archwood on the sidewalk and Mata Sereno driving the bullet-riddled vehicle in the same direction. Phillips positioned himself behind a parked tractor trailer further down the street. That's when Officer John Caparelli decided to act. Caparelli said, I knew these guys were getting shot at, but they just kept going. I looked to my left and he was still firing at officers. I was thinking, well, I'm going to stop this guy finally. Here's my chance. The veteran lawman emerged from behind his defensive position and let off six rounds from his handgun. According to Caparelli, they didn't do anything. I knew some of them hit him, but he just slowly turned with the AK-47 in his hands, and I turned and ran, and somewhere in there, his gun jammed. It's a miracle. It gave me those seconds to get across the street and get some cover. 
Still behind the tractor trailer and out of view of police helicopters, Phillips now struggled to fix his AK-47. The weapon had suffered what's known as a stovepipe malfunction, the result of a round that fired but didn't completely eject from the rifle. The failure left Phillips with only a 9mm Beretta to face down over 100 officers. It was time to make his final stand. A minute later, Phillips walked out from behind the trailer with the pistol raised. He let off several shots in the direction of Caparelli and the officers at the corner of Archwood and Agnes. Returning fire, one of the cops hit Phillips in his shooting hand. Badly outnumbered and unable to continue to defend himself, the 26-year-old fired his final shot. With several helicopters looking on, Phillips put the 9mm under his chin and fired, killing himself on live TV while millions of viewers looked on. At the exact moment Phillips was shooting himself, a bullet fired by an officer tore through Phillips's right shoulder and severed his spinal cord. Had he not shot himself, that bullet would have likely had the same result. After 20 minutes of intense gunfire, the Battle of Laurel Canyon was down to one. Further down Archwood, Emil Montesoreno needed a new vehicle and he needed it fast. The Chevy was a bullet-riddled mess, its front windshield impossible to see through, its engine shot to pieces, its tires punctured and flat. After multiple attempts to hijack a passing car failed, Montesoreno finally found his mark as the possibility emerged that the shooter might actually mount an escape, the cavalry arrived in the form of LAPD Special Weapons and Tactics, better known as SWAT, and they were ready to take the fight directly to him. Rick Massa and his partners were about to set out for a daily training run at the Los Angeles Police Academy when one of his sergeants came screaming into the parking lot with alarming news. SWAT was needed on Laurel Canyon Boulevard in the San Fernando Valley. Bank takeover in progress, shots fired, suspects heavily armed. Massa said in an interview with Murderish, I knew exactly where that was. I grew up in North Hollywood. That was like home to me. An accomplished distance runner, Massa had been preparing for Baker to Vegas, a grueling 120-mile relay race between California and Nevada, and the LA Marathon that Sunday. Little did he know at that moment, he was about to face the biggest test of his life. Massa and his three SWAT partners, Don Anderson, Steve Gomez, and Peter Wyreader, scrambled for their cars. As the caravan of officers zoomed down the emergency lane of the 134 freeway past morning rush hour, a call came over the radio from the Metro Division desk. Massa recalled, he says, these are the guys who we've been looking for, the guys we've been staked out on. They're heavily armed and we've got five to seven officers down. When you're a cop, that's the last thing in the world you want to hear. When someone says officers down, you don't know if they're killed, injured, or what. While Massa had never before heard the names Larry Phillips and Emil Montesoreno, he was familiar with their work. A year earlier, Massa had been part of a team 
assigned to taking down the high-incident bandits. After multiple stakeouts of banks didn't yield results, the unit, which included members of the FBI, disbanded. Now they were getting another chance. Their orders were clear. Get eyes on the suspects, rescue any downed officers, and if you get a clear shot, take the shooters down. This message is sponsored by Greenlight. I'm a mom of three kids. Two of them are in their 20s and my youngest is 10. I've already started having big talks with my 10-year-old because I want to prepare her now for adulting. The way I see it, addressing the topic of money is essential and Greenlight can help with that. Greenlight is a family-oriented debit card and financial app. It enables you to provide instant money transfers to your children, receive real-time spending notifications, you know, for those countless apps they download that cost actual money. Greenlight also allows you to organize chores and automate allowances. You can create both recurring and one-time chores tailored to your family's requirements, linking them to allowances as a way to acknowledge and reward your kids for their efforts. I wish I would have had this app when my adult kids were still in the house. I know this would have motivated them to finish their chores consistently, or at least better than they would have if we wouldn't have had the app. Luckily, I'm able to help my youngest daughter learn the value of a dollar, as well as financial literacy and independence. While your children acquire skills in earning, saving, and wise spending, the Greenlight app enhances their journey. Additionally, the app includes a financial literacy game called Level Up, which fosters money confidence through videos, bite-sized challenges, mini games, and other engaging features. Now this, if you ask me, is a feature that is genius. Kids respond so well to games, so Greenlight created a game that's fun for kids while also teaching them about money. With over 6 million parents and kids utilizing Greenlight, it's become a trusted platform for learning responsible financial decision-making. So stop putting off the money talk and start putting your kids on the right path. Sign up for Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com murderish. That's greenlight.com slash murderish to try Greenlight for free. Greenlight.com slash murderish. As parents, we want the absolute best for our children and we'd do anything to protect them. The truth is, I won't always be around to protect my children. That's why it's crucial that I plan for my family's financial security now. If life throws an unexpected emergency at us and I'm out of the picture, I need to know we're prepared with a great term life insurance policy. Fabric by Gerber Life makes it simple to get the protection that's right for your family. Fabric by Gerber Life was designed by parents for parents to help you get a high quality, surprisingly affordable term life insurance policy in less than 10 minutes. Fabric offers adaptable policies that suit both your family and your budget, featuring quality coverage like a million dollars for less than a dollar a day. The entire process is online and extremely flexible. No appointments, scheduling, or piles of paperwork. You could go from start to covered in less than 10 minutes with no health exam required. There's no risk to apply. They have a 30-day money-back guarantee and you can cancel anytime. Fabric has joined forces with Gerber Life, a trusted choice for millions of families like yours for over five decades. Boasting an excellent rating on Trustpilot with over 1,800 five-star reviews, Fabric is more than just a life insurance provider. 
It serves as a comprehensive one-stop shop, offering complimentary digital wills, investment accounts for savings towards your kid's future, and the convenience of managing your family's finances directly from your phone. Join the thousands of parents who trust Fabric to protect their family. Apply today in just minutes at meetfabric.com slash murderish. That's meetfabric.com slash murderish. M-E-E-T fabric.com slash murderish. Policies issued by Western Southern Life Assurance Company, not available in certain states. Prices subject to underwriting and health questions. Lack of sleep was impacting my energy and focus during the day, but then I found my better sleep savior, Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough. Insomnia can be a symptom of magnesium deficiency, and apparently four out of five Americans are magnesium deficient. Since I started incorporating Magnesium Breakthrough into my routine, my sleep has been transformed. I take Bioptimizer's Magnesium Breakthrough during my nighttime skincare routine, and I've been falling asleep faster and staying asleep. Not to mention, it's been great for my workout recovery. It's so important to get a great sleep so I can show up better for my family, my friends, and my podcast team. Unlike other magnesium supplements, Magnesium Breakthrough delivers all seven essential forms, not just one to two. This unique blend doesn't just improve sleep, it enhances digestion, supports muscle recovery, and promotes overall well being. From combating migraines and chronic pain to boosting energy and supporting heart health, Magnesium Breakthrough is the natural all in one solution. Plus, with optimized absorption, all natural ingredients, and a 365-day money-back guarantee, it's the number one selling product that's constantly improving to end physical suffering. Don't miss out on the most relaxing sleep ever with Magnesium Breakthrough. For an exclusive offer for my listeners, go to buyoptimizers.com murderish and use promo code murderish during checkout to save 10%. And in addition to the discount you get by using promo code murderish, you can get gifts with purchase, up to two travel size bottles of Magnesium Breakthrough. Act fast, this is a limited time offer. Go now to buyoptimizers.com murderish. By the time of the shooting in 1997, Massa was already a 26 year veteran of the department and a 16 year member of SWAT. He'd been involved in countless high profile takedowns and shootouts but nothing like what awaited him in North Hollywood. Then in his late 40s, Massa worked out of LAPD's Metro Division, home to SWAT. SWAT has two jobs, high-octane emergency response and direct enforcement of major crimes. Massa exited Victory Boulevard off the 170 freeway just after 9.40 a.m. Within seconds of arriving on surface streets, he heard the unmistakable sound of machine gun fire. Massa said, it sounded like a war zone. With only the information given to them by dispatch and what officers could tell them on scene, Massa and his three partners joined forces at a police cordon. After gearing up, the foursome jumped into Anderson's black and white squad car, Y-reader in the front, and Massa and Gomez in the back. SWAT members had traditionally operated in unmarked cars. That changed, Massa said, 
when then-Police Chief Willie Williams ordered most of the department's nondescript vehicles to be painted to resemble regular patrol cars. According to Massa, he promised voters, you're going to see more black and whites on the streets. Well, what he did is took all the plain cars out of service and painted them all black and white. So yeah, you're going to see more black and whites, but not because he added any cars. Though SWAT officers' primary weapon in 1997 was a lightweight MP5 submachine gun, Massa and his partners were ordered by Metro captains to use their 223 assault rifles because the MP5's 9mm ammo was unlikely to penetrate the shooter's vest. Just before they set out to confront the shooters, Massa remembered to grab four extra magazines for his rifle, a move that would prove critical. As they began to roll toward the bank parking lot, the four men had no idea where to look for the gunmen. Seated behind the driver, Massa wanted to give himself a clear shot in the direction of the bank, so he rolled down the window of the car, only to have it stop eight inches short. The veteran SWAT officer said to Murderish, I thought, how in the hell are these cars childproof? As they turned on Archwood, Massa recalled seeing the dead body of Larry Phillips sprawled face down on the pavement. They drove a short distance further when they spotted Officer Whitfield, badly injured. Y-Reader leapt from the vehicle and joined a group of other responding officers in an armored vehicle. Using the vehicle, they were able to rescue Whitfield and two injured civilians. The rest of the men continued on, looking to confront the surviving shooter. Waved through by fellow officers, the men raced down Archwood, approaching what they believed to be the driver of a pickup truck in need of rescue. At the last second, they came to a stunning realization. Shit, that's our suspect. Already shot multiple times, Mata Sereno was in the middle of hijacking a truck, spotting an older gentleman driving a 1961 Jeep pickup down Archwood. Mata Sereno fired through his own windshield in the vehicle's direction. The driver, William Marr, sprinted for cover, but not before flipping the truck's kill switch. When Mata Sereno got behind the wheel and turned the keys, after transferring over his weapons and ammo, the Jeep's engine refused to start. Like nearly every other harrowing moment at the North Hollywood shootout, the next 60 seconds were caught on camera, producing one of the most dramatic law enforcement moments ever captured on film. Just as Mata Sereno exited the hijacked truck, video shot by a news helicopter shows a black and white police car appearing suddenly out of the blue. It's Massa and SWAT. A nearby bike officer radioed for the car to back off, but is quickly corrected. That unit is the Metro unit, ma'am, and they're engaging the suspect. They're not able to back off, another officer says. According to Massa, we're not trained to back up. In the 25 years I was in SWAT, not once did I ever do a training where we retreat. If we're in it, we're in it. We stay there. We stay there until it's over. Smart or not, that I don't know. As Officer Anderson pulled up next to the front of the pickup, he quickly turned the car at an angle 
a life-saving move. According to Massa, if he had come straight up, he could have shot us right then and there. With only the truck between themselves and Matasareno, the men were close enough to smell the gunpowder from the shooter's automatic rifle to hear every action he took with his gun. An intense, close-quarters battle ensued. The two parties, Mata Sereno on one side and the three SWAT officers on the other, opened fire. Glass and metal exploded as bullets ripped through the jeep caught in the crossfire. Mata Sereno at one point began to fire under the vehicles, his bullets ricocheting off the pavement and nearly hitting the officers. Massa recounted what happened next to Murderish, saying, My biggest worry was that he could come around at any time and just shoot us because we couldn't see him. So I was the first one to prune out. So as I prune out, I look under the cars and I see him right there. I see his feet. So I hit him three times in the feet and he goes down. One thing in training we were always taught that you shoot whatever part of the body is exposed if he is still a threat. And he was definitely still a threat. With Mata Sereno finally on the ground, the rest of the SWAT team let their rifles rip, striking the gunman 28 times. When the shooter's rifle finally went silent, the three men, Gomez still in shorts and running shoes, took their chance and swarmed him. The time was 9.59 a.m. It was Massa who pulled off Mata Sereno's ski mask revealing to the world the individual capable of such incredible violence. Massa said, he looks at me and says, why don't you just put a bullet in my head? In fact, no more bullets were fired, and within an hour, Mata Sereno, the computer geek turned paramilitary, was dead. He bled out on the street. A year after the shooting, Mata Sereno's family filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Massa, SWAT, and the LAPD for failing to provide medical aid. They eventually lost in court. Massa said he doesn't lose sleep over it. He told Murderish, I spoke about the case at the West Coast Coroner's Convention, and one of the coroners told me, if you would have had him on our table in 10 minutes with that last bullet that hit him, we would not have been able to save him because you hit him 28 times and with that much trauma, there's no way the body could have recovered. While many of the officers involved in the North Hollywood shootout suffered severe trauma and PTSD in the aftermath, Massa and his fellow SWAT members worked another assignment that same day. Two days later, Massa ran the Los Angeles Marathon in just over three hours. The Simi Valley, California resident told Murderish, he doesn't mean to sound like a tough guy, but 16 years in SWAT has a way of hardening a person, preparing them for life and death situations. Massa said, I don't wave flags. I'm not some macho guy, but it speaks volumes to the training. You've got to have that instinct in you. It takes a certain person to run toward disaster as opposed to running away. I don't judge other guys who were never the same, but that's not how it was for us. Though it was he and his partners who were able to do what over 300 officers couldn't take down Emil Matasoreno, 
Massa said the outgunned patrolmen who arrived first demonstrated as much bravery as anyone. They were uniformed patrol officers that were bird-dogging this guy all the way down Archwood. One of the things I did when I got to Mata Sereno is I held up a closed fist. The last thing I wanted to do was get shot by friendly fire, and the uniformed patrol officers were extremely disciplined. As soon as I held up my fist, the shooting stopped. When all was said and done, the entire encounter, from Philip's first shots in the bank ceiling to Mata Sereno lying on the ground in cuffs, riddled with bullets, had lasted 44 minutes. For the officers and civilians who spent much of that time on the receiving end of relentless gunfire, it felt like an eternity. Officer Stuart Guy, who lives with a titanium plate in his leg, as a result of getting shot by Phillips's AK-47, said, That day we fought, and we fought, and we fought. And it was literally like 200 dark blue ants nibbling and biting on this humongous tarantula. And little by little, we got him. In the documentary Zero Hour, Caporelli, who came face to face with Larry Phillips in his final moments on Archwood, reminds the audience that although no law enforcement officer was killed during the North Hollywood shootout, most were never the same again. The officer said, there was a lot of stress, a lot of stress. I was waking up every night, 1, 1.30 every night, and going back and reliving what was happening and wondering, why did that gun jam? What if it hadn't? Just over and over again, you think about that. I was told, First responders, police officers, firefighters, you start out with an empty gas tank, and as you go through your career, the things you see and do start filling that gas tank. There were three guys I used to work with that took their own lives. It wasn't just because of that shootout, but for those of us that were there, we know that was another piece of filling that gas tank. The final numbers are staggering. Over 1,600 rounds fired between the robbers and the police. 12 officers and nine civilians wounded. Millions of dollars in property damage. Over 500 eyewitnesses. One LAPD vehicle was said to have received 57 bullet holes. As for that key shack, it was struck 150 times. Incredibly, no innocents were killed. Massa was among 17 LAPD officers to receive the department's highest honor for their actions during the shootout, the Medal of Valor. The now-retired cop said, I don't see myself as a hero. We were just doing our jobs. It was all about the training. The multi-agency response featured city, county, state, and federal officers. The command post, which started on the trunk of a car, moved to a furniture store, and then a mobile command vehicle. The internal investigation into the shooting would take multiple years. The officers' accounts of the shootout were detailed in what's called a use-of-force report, a review prepared for the Los Angeles Police Commission. LA Times reporters wrote, The 25-page document tells a harrowing narrative of the first wave of officers arriving being cut to pieces, 
then being covered and rescued by a second wave as dozens of others filled in behind them, keeping up a relentless fire with pistols until still others with rifles arrived. The attack on police shocked law enforcement agencies across the country, prompting a widespread trend to beef up police armament. Donald DeLuca, the president of the International Association of Chiefs of Police, said to the LA Times, there's so many things that took place that kind of shook the conscience. It created a shift. Like the LAPD, agencies across the country began upgrading weapons for their patrol officers, giving them high-powered rifles to go with their handguns. Street cops were trained to use those weapons so they wouldn't have to wait for SWAT to rescue them. The LAPD also authorized officers to carry high-caliber handguns that exceed the stopping power of the standard-issue sidearms. Caporelli, in a 2017 retelling of the shootout for a thin blue line, the Los Angeles Police Protective League's magazine, highlighted the progress around mental health, such as mandatory counseling for officers experiencing PTSD. The officer wrote, others won't have to helplessly watch as family members or coworkers single-handedly deal with issues they don't fully understand. Writing 20 years after the event that nearly took his life, Officer Martin Whitfield said, I am still surviving this ordeal. Multiple surgeries and many months of physical and mental therapy immediately followed the shooting. Although I remember every minute of February 28, 1997, I cherish every minute after that day and have developed a lifestyle of surviving. The entire episode has become part of police lore and canon. Every single recruit at the LAPD Police Academy still spends at least one classroom session studying the law enforcement response from beginning to end. The same can be said for departments in every state in the U.S. Massa is one of several veterans of the North Hollywood shootout who've gone on to careers in consulting, teaching classes on how to respond under pressure, how to internalize training, and how to adjust when the completely unexpected happens. Asked why he wasn't more fearful about pulling within 10 feet of an armed gunman with a shield of body armor and a weapon designed to tear flesh from bone, Massa said training simply kicked in. There's also something to be said about being the type of individual whose first instinct is to run toward danger, not away from it. According to Massa, if you can't do that, then this isn't the job for you. Massa, now in his 70s, spent another nine years with the LAPD after the shootout. Though he and his fellow SWAT officers would be part of several more high-profile incidents, nothing ever came close to those 20 harrowing minutes in North Hollywood. The father and grandfather didn't find it easy to walk away. After leaving the LAPD at age 58, he joined the force at Bob Hope Airport in Burbank. Shortly upon arrival, he pushed for joint SWAT aircraft training, the first program of its kind in the nation. For his efforts, he was named the department's officer of the year. Life hasn't been all shock and awe for the retired SWAT officer. 
Masa parlayed a relationship with Wolfgang Puck's team of chefs into a passion for cooking. In 2009, he won $25,000 on the Food Network's Ultimate Recipe Showdown with his gourmet macaroni and cheese. Today, Rick Masa still operates a small-scale catering business out of his home. He's working on a book about his experience in the 1997 shootout and the rest of his 25-year SWAT career. Like a few of his colleagues, he served as an expert on the set of the 2003 Hollywood film, 44 Minutes. Masa said of the film, it's not bad. While much has been made about the police reforms that took place after North Hollywood, Masa said the department of 2024 has actually begun to roll back some of the changes, including rifle training for all patrol officers. According to Masa, that's how it starts. Then, all of a sudden, they're back in the same position we were in 1997. And that's typical when you think about it. Those with a morbid fascination for the North Hollywood shootout can enjoy an entire exhibit dedicated to the events of February 28, 1997 at the Los Angeles Police Museum near Los Angeles International Airport at 6045 York Boulevard. Tickets are $10 for adults and can be purchased online or at the door. Special thank you to Jenny Gillette and Rick Massa for participating in this episode and providing their key insight. Also, a big thank you to Kay Brand for making the interviews possible and working so diligently on this story. On a personal note, I remember this day vividly as I lived in an area about an hour away from where the shootout happened. I was one of the millions of people who watched in horror as the deadly event unfolded. I will never forget what I saw on my TV screen. I can't imagine actually living through it. This case also hits close to home for me because I've actually been through an armed bank robbery. It was May of 2011 and I was working at a commercial bank in Redlands, California. That morning, two men entered the bank wearing dark clothing and hoods over their heads. One man was carrying a large bag and the other had a gun. Everyone inside the bank, which included bank staff and customers, were held at gunpoint, while one of the robbers jumped over the teller line and stole cash. It was a truly frightening experience and probably a story for another day. Needless to say, my experience, while terrifying, paled in comparison to what happened at the North Hollywood shootout. Make sure you're subscribed to Murderish wherever you listen to podcasts so you don't miss new episodes. I hope you'll join me at a live meetup on February 24th, 2024 that I'm co-hosting with my good friends, Aaron and Justin, hosts of the Generation Y podcast. The free meetup is happening in North Hollywood, ironically the same city where this case took place. The meetup is being held at the Idle Hour Bar on Saturday, February 24th, 2024 in North Hollywood. Aaron, Justin, and I will be there for a casual hangout with friends and fans of our podcasts. Mark your calendars for February 24th, 2024 and join us in Los Angeles for a casual and fun evening. Go to Murderish.com for more event details. I hope to see you there. 
If you enjoy Murderish, please consider leaving a positive rating and review in Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening now. Are you watching a lot of true crime documentaries and want a community of like-minded people to talk about them with? Well, all you have to do is join the true crime TV club I started. We call ourselves the Serial Streamers and we meet in my Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube comments a couple times a month to dish about all the crazy true crime docs we're watching together. If you want to join Serial Streamers, all you have to do is follow me on Instagram, TikTok, or YouTube at Jamie on Air. That's J-A-M-I on Air. And watch for videos about the latest TV series we're watching together. So you can join us in the comments and share your thoughts. That's Jamie on Air on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. If you'd like ad-free episodes of Murderish, sign up for Murderish Behind the Mic on Patreon or at Murderish.com and start enjoying ad-free episodes right away. This episode was researched and written by Kay Brandt. Visit Murderish.com for a list of sources used for this episode. And remember, listening to this podcast doesn't make you a murderer. It just means you're murder-ish. truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.